So I want to start by sharing a story that I've kind of been hesitating sharing because it seems like um, over the last uh, several times I've been able to, um, to share a message uh, that I've talked a little bit about my past. Um, and it seems like, you know, I start thinking about the timeline and a lot of things happened when I was 17 years old that I'm not very proud of. Um, a lot of you know that I, I, it was, um, uh, I was before I knew Jesus, um, and man, I did not know Jesus. I, started, I just started thinking about some of the things that I'd gone through when I, when I was, you know, graduating high school, you know, junior in high school, graduating high school. And so it was, again, 17 years old. Um, and uh, we were out one night, and it was me and my cousin. My cousin, he's, uh, he's the same age as me, and so we kind of grew up really close together. We were like brothers. Um, and so we were out one night, um, and we were inebriated to, to some degree. Uh, we, we shouldn't have been on the road. We shouldn't, there's a lot of things we shouldn't have been doing. And again, I, I'm kind of ashamed to be sharing these stories with you because it seems like every time I do, it's not a, a really good, glorious story. Um, but, but I have a point, so I wanted to share it. Um, and so where we lived, we, uh, I, grew, I didn't grow up in Sulphur. I didn't move to Sulphur until I was um, a junior in high school. Uh, we grew up in an extremely rural area. Um, I grew up without a telephone or cable in my home. You know, that, and that was kind of normal, you know. Um, and, and so uh, that meant that fun usually meant some kind of trouble, right? That meant that if you wanted to have some kind of fun, then you had to break something or terrorize somebody or terrorize somebody's pet or something like that in order to, to have some fun. Um, and... So uh, that, uh, that uh, got, you know, uh, you know, perpetually worse as we got older. Um, and whenever, we, uh, whenever I was 17, we were out one night, we were drinking, we were, uh, we were kind of out of sorts, and we was like, hey, let's go ride around uh, in the park. We had, uh, it, where I grew up, there was a park similar to Sam Houston. Um, and so we would tend to always kind of at least make a round through the park every weekend because there were always new people there to meet, right? And so it was, uh, let's just go make a round through there. Well, it was like we weren't thinking very straight. It was like uh, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. Um, and so we slip in there, and, and they lock the gates up at night uh, there. But uh, it's a certain time that they lock the gates up. And so we went in, and we just kind of made just driving around a little bit. Um, and when we got to the very back part of the park, farthest away from the exit of the park, um, we saw a, a ranger, a park ranger, and we saw him kind of coming toward us and was like, this guy can't like, we can't make contact with this guy because we're going to be in a lot of trouble. We're not supposed to be driving. We're kind of, you know, just, there's so, there's so many questions that come up about us, you know, so when a park ranger shows up, uh, we're going to be in some trouble. So let's just leave him. Let's just get out of here. And so I just stomped on the accelerator of the truck, and I'm talking about this, the, these little park roads are like 10 miles an hour, 5 miles an hour through these hills and curves, but I knew the park like the back of my hand, um, and so I'm just flying 60, 70 miles an hour through some of these roads, and there are campers on this, you know, people just kind of peacefully having a weekend break and things like that. Um, and so, like, we left him in the dust. We were like halfway out of the park, and we're like, that dude is never going to find us. And so we're flying through there, and we get to the, uh, to the, to the admission booth uh, where you come into the park where you paid your, your entry fee to get in and pay everything. Um, and we just flew by that, and we still had probably about a quarter of a mile before we got to the, to the exit of the, of the park. Um, and when we got there, this ranger was a step ahead of us. He had went ahead and locked the gate and then came around to meet us. Um, and so by this time, I had been driving like a maniac through the park. Um, I was 
completely wasted out of my mind, shouldn't have been driving, and here I am now locked in, and this guy's coming in behind us. Um, and so I'm just like, man, we are in so much trouble. Like, I just, I just literally drove 80 miles an hour through this park, you know, and I'm really, really, really not in my mind, right mind. And so he gets out, and we have this conversation, and for some reason, I talked my way out of it, don't know how, and he lets us go. I think it might have had that he knew my dad or something like that. It was kind of one of those deals. Um, so that, wh- the reason I want to share that story is because I always think about the boldness that I had, like the, like the, the assurance that the gate was open, and, and my response to that assurance was, I'm, I'm just going to do the unthinkable. I'm going to do the unimaginable. I'm going to do the thing that I would never do otherwise. Now, of course, you know, alcohol had contributed to some of the bravery, uh, but a lot of it had to do with knowing that the, the gate was open, right? And I think the reason why I want to share that story, the, the, the point of me sharing that story, is the extreme courage that I had knowing having that certainty, and the opposite is mostly true of us. The opposite is mostly true of us when, we, when we're slightly uncertain of what's ahead, how, that, how we respond to that how it kind of imprisons us, how it locks us up and binds us with fear, not knowing what the next step's going to be, not knowing what's ahead. Like if I knew the gate was locked, would I have driven that way? Would I have responded that way? Probably not. I would have probably tried to be a little bit more diplomatic about it. Um, but, but I was sure that the gate was open, and so I responded with this crazy courage, this crazy boldness to, to, to just do the unthinkable. I'm not encouraging you to go and break the law, by the way. That's not, that's not what the point of that is. The point of it is, is assurance in something makes us be very courageous. Assurance makes us courageous. And for the past 38 weeks, I had to stop yesterday and count up how long have we been going through Acts. This, this, this is going to make, I think, week 39 for us. So for the past 38 weeks, as, as we've journeyed through this book, um, we've been faced with this glaring question that we've been asking that the text has been asking of us, and we're just simply up here relaying the question to you, will you surrender your life for the gospel of the grace of God? Will you surrender your life? How do you answer that question? How do you answer the question? Seriously, how do you answer that question? Will I surrender my life for the gospel of the grace of God? And I'm afraid, I'm deathly afraid that many of us in this room would answer that question with a flat-out no. No, I won't. We might not say it with our mouth, right? But our actions always speak louder than our words. And so how do we answer the question? I've studied through this book, uh, and I've sat under teaching just like you have throughout this book, throughout these 38 weeks. And there's one thing that I'm constantly reminded of as we go through this book. I'm constantly reminded that there is so much more to this life than what we're currently settling for. There is so much more to your life than probably what you're settling for right now. So much more. And so that, that God is calling us to so much more than just casual Christianity. I'll bring that back up again. We talked about that several weeks ago. This casual Christianity that, that lacks adventure, that lacks excitement, that, that lacks driving through the park at 80 miles an hour, breaking all the rules kind of adventure, and, it, and instead it idolizes comfort. Like our lives are controlled by trying to be comfortable. 
And I believe God's calling us to more than that. I believe that's what I've been challenged with as we've gone through this book, that he's challenged us with so much more. And as Joey said last week, uh, the rest, the remaining uh, part of Acts, our series through Acts, we're going to kind of we're going to move at a, at a more accelerated pace through the remainder of this book. Um, not because we just need to finish, but because of the structure of Luke's writings. Um, kind of, I don't know if you've noticed this, but throughout his writings, he's kind of went high level and did some broad coverage of, of the history of the church. And then he's kind of, he's kind of came down and, and put his crosshairs on some, some special events. And so that's caused us to kind of speed up and slow down through this book. The rest of this book is kind of like a travel log, right? Like, so uh, we're gonna, you saw this a week or two ago where, you know, Paul went here, he stopped here, he stayed here three days, and just kind of moving through the area on his way to Jerusalem, and then eventually he's going to be off to Rome. And so we're going to try to uh, cover those, but we're going to cover those and, and hit these important points as we, as we go. And so today we're going to hit two chapters. We're going to cover 22 and 23. Uh, of the book of Acts. And so if, you're in, if you have your word, you can go there to Acts chapter 22. And I believe the passage for us today, I'm going to try to talk fast because we are, you know, we're going to be pressed for time to try to get through some of this. Um, but I believe it gives us a good glimpse of what it looks like to surrender our lives for the sake of the gospel. That's the big question. Will we, are we willing to do that? And if so, what can I expect? What, what, can, I, what, can, I, what can I know about down the road so that I can be bold about this, right? Uh, I believe we'll get to see some of that. I want to give you some background for context. Last, last week we saw Paul, uh, he's headed to Jerusalem. He gets there after many people are telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to die in Jerusalem. They're going to they're take your head in Jerusalem. Don't go there. Every stop along every port that he makes is, is th- the same thing. Brothers and sisters encouraging him, don't go, don't go. But Paul desires to do ministry in Jerusalem. And that's, that's his priority above anything else that he has going on is to, to be obedient to where, what God's calling him to do. And so he goes to Jerusalem. That's where we have him. And not long after he arrives, um, a mob is stirred up. Uh, every, the whole town is angry, and he's being drugged out of the temple. The gates are being shut behind him. He's being trumped with some bogus charges um, about bringing Gentiles into the temple. Uh, into the holy place almost. And so there's this, cha- there's this chaos that's going on, so much so that the Roman soldiers have to jump in. They have to come in and kind of pull pa- Paul from the, from the crowd, get him away. Um, and just before he's taken away, that's kind of where we stopped last week. Yeah, before he's taken away, he asked the soldiers, may I address the crowd? And they give him permission. And as he begins to take his place, the whole mob just kind of settles down and starts paying attention And that's where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 22. And he says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. See, now Paul's contextualizing. He's speaking the language of the people he's talking to. It's very important for you and I as brothers and sisters to know this. Know our context. Know the people in our context. That way, whenever we communicate the good news of Jesus, that we can do it in a way that they understand. And so if I'm not talking to a group of scholarly people, I'm not going to use scholarly terms. I'm going to use terms that, that, that they can relate to. And that's what Paul's doing here. Paul's identifying his context, and he's also making a point to say, I'm one of you guys. He's speaking their language. The, Romans, the Roman soldiers wouldn't even know what he was saying at this point. He would be speaking in the Hebrew language. And they became even more quiet when they heard that. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. 
Paul's given his religious resume. I'm a Jew. I'm Jewish just like you guys. I've received elite education right here in Jerusalem. I was at the top of my class. And I too was passionate for God. I too was passionate for the law so much so that he would say in verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death. I persecuted Christians, followers of Jesus, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as, as a high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. So he's saying, these, these guys here who are trumping these charges up, who, who are kind of slapping me with these charges, they can attest I did these things. I was zealous just like you guys. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul was well known for his terrorism against the believers. It, it was known all throughout the region, all throughout the world, uh, in, the, in the church of this guy named Saul of Tarsus, this, this persecutor of the church, this terrorist. And the reason he responded with such violence, the way he re reacted to Christians that way, was because as a devout Jew, he saw Jesus Christ uh, as a false teacher. That this guy is a joke. He didn't see Jesus as God. As a matter of fact, Jesus claiming that he was God was even blasphemy, which was like just the ultimate deal breaker for the Jew, right? You can't claim to be God. And so to Paul, Jesus was just another celebrity con artist who was going around teaching people this false religion, this false hope, leading them astray. And these people who were following Jesus, they weren't just fools in Paul's eyes. They were traitors. They were traitors to their, to their heritage. And that's why Paul responded with such violence to the church. You're not just, you're not just ignorant and, and following blindly this guy, but you're a traitor to who you are. You're a traitor to your heritage. And in verse 6, he'd say, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So see, now he's given his story. Paul's recounting the moment that he met Jesus. I appreciate Jeff for doing that for us this morning. Of all the things you may or may not know about Christianity, the one thing that can't be taken from you is your story. And that's where Paul starts. He said, let me remind all of you of who I was. And then I drew near to Damascus and I, I meet Jesus. And, and whenever this light shines in his face and, and, and Paul would say, or Saul at this time would say, Lord, who are you? When he uses that word Lord, he's, he's immediately ascribing worth and value and, and, and headship to whatever this is. Nothing on earth can be more glorious than what I'm seeing right now. You are Lord. Lord, who are you? As far as he knew, Jesus was dead. Jesus was a dead man at this point, and the disciples had just stole the body and went and hid it away and made, a made up a story. But now he's come face to face with the risen Jesus Paul was headed to Damascus to persecute followers. And Jesus interrupted that trip and gave him a new agenda on his way to Damascus. And one Ananias, verse 12, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of, everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. What a fitting text today, right? That the response to meeting Jesus 
is baptism, right? And I want to be very clear about that text because it can almost read that your sins are being cleansed through baptism. And I want us to, I want us to pay special attention to, to how that statement ends, how that verse ends and what the focus is. Sins are washed away by calling on the name of Jesus, by confessing Him as Lord, acknowledging the work that He did on the cross for the forgiveness of sin, and placing our faith in Him. Early on in the book, we came across chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. You are saved by calling on the name of Jesus. Calling on the name of Jesus. And the baptism of Paul and Jeff and myself and many of you in this room is just a public declaration that I now belong to Jesus. And here, world, here's who I am now. And here's who I belong to at this point. I, I like to use the illustration of a wedding band. I could take this wedding band on or off, and it doesn't change my marital status at all. It only tells the world, hey, I belong to someone. It's a symbol. It's a symbol. And so what happened on the road to Damascus that day, what happened on the road to Damascus with Paul was complete surrender. And that's the, kind of the theme of this whole text where we're going to be today. What does it look like to surrender? What does it look like to say, I surrender my life for the sake of the gospel? And surrender, primarily, you see that first off, that it brings Jesus clearly into focus. Like he's able to see Jesus clearly now. Up until this point, he thought his religious activity, he thought his zeal was enough to earn his acceptance to God. He thought that his knowledge, all of the things that he knew ab about his heritage and about God and about his people and where they come from, he thought that was the thing that made God smile on him. And until this point that he, he surrendered, did he see Jesus he had the right pedigree. He had the right education. He had a zeal. He had a passion for the law. But surrender not only brings Jesus clearly into focus, but just like we saw with Paul, it brings our own condition clearly into focus. Right? When we kind of lay it all down, we get to see ourselves as truly as we are. Like just, We get to kind of see through and through us. For the, for the first time in his life, in the light of the glory of Jesus Paul saw just how sinful he was. He saw how sinful he was, that, that his sin was a personal offense to God. It wasn't something that was just inherited and it had to be looked over because it really was. He got it from his father Adam and it wasn't really his fault. But his sin personally offended God. And he needed to be cleansed from all his unrighteousness. And when the light of Jesus was shown in Paul's heart, he saw extreme, with extreme clarity who Jesus is brought Jesus clearly into focus that he is king. He's this bright, glorious light in my life, and he shined light in my dark heart. And now I can see clearly all the broken things, all the messed up things in my heart. And the light of the glory of Christ, you're going to see your good deeds. You're going to see your church attendance. You're going to see all your Bible studies. You're going to see all of those things in the light of Jesus your social justice efforts, you're going to see that none of that gets you anywhere without Jesus. It won't get you anywhere without Christ. I love that, that we have this picture today that Jeff would stand up and say, I had a lot of things going on. I thought I was in a lot of the, lot of the right places. But then he came in contact with the glory of Jesus and he saw the real him. He saw the real Jesus. He said, I've been running on something different. And I know that it has to be Jesus. Jesus has to be the one. 
And as I considered this section of our passage this week, the question kept flying in my face. Do I really believe that God still opens eyes like he did with Paul? Do I really believe that he does that? Do I really believe that God can unravel the most hardened and stubborn heart? That's an important question for us to consider when we, when we consider whether we're willing to surrender our lives for the sake of the gospel. Is God, if I lay all of this on the line, are you going to come through? Can you do the impossible? Because you're asking me to lay it all on the line. You're asking me to completely surrender to you. And most of the time, surrender doesn't come with this supernatural, glorious encounter with Jesus where it's a bright light and he's speaking verbally to us. A lot of the times, most of the times, it comes in our ordinary faithfulness. It comes in our just ordinary, everyday faithfulness to tell someone the good news and trust that God can do the impossible with that person. The hardened heart the person who you feel like today, the person that comes to your mind that you think today is never going to see the light of Jesus, that they are, they are just completely opposed to Jesus in all sorts of the way, their life and the way they speak, they're just adamant about it. God can save that person. God can save that person. We're nearly 30,000 people just in this city. We might, we might even be further than that now. Five years ago when we planted... We're 22,000. This, this city's growing at a, a crazy rapid rate. And today, this morning, less than half of those people even considered Jesus. They woke up this morning and less than half of them even considered Jesus. And all the church, um, church growth books and articles and things that you would read, they would say that consistently across America... 96% of all church growth is transfer growth. And what I mean by that is churches competing for other church members. 96%. Most of you in this room are here as a result of transfer growth. Most of you. It means that we're spending our time, it means that we're spending our energy, it means that we're spending our resources trying to produce a product to attract people who've already met Jesus. That's what that means. 96% of church growth in the world, in America, is considered transfer growth. Can I lovingly say that if this is all we're about, then I don't want in. It's not why we did this. It's not why we started. That's not why we moved into this neighborhood. That's not why we tried to plant here. I'm not in if that's what it's about. I'm not interested in marketing a better church product to be consumed. I want and I need more than anything right now to see Jesus reveal himself to people in a powerful and glorious and convincing way. That's what I need. That's what I want to see, and that's what I want to be a part of. I want to see God unravel the hardest of hearts. I want to see God save to the uttermost. Amen. That's what I want to be a part of. And do you believe that God can do that? Do you believe that he can, he can take blinders off of the most hardened of hearts? If you're visiting here today from another church, I'm glad you're here. I don't want to, I don't want to sound... Militant, I appreciate you. I'm super grateful you're here. 
we want you to fill out a connect card in the back. We want to get you to sign up on our stuff. We, 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 want, to, we want to minister to you. But the big question is, has, have you truly seen Jesus? Have you truly seen Jesus? I didn't ask, do you know who Jesus is? Have you truly seen Jesus? You can go your whole life knowing Christianity. You can go your whole life knowing who Jesus is, having never seen him, having never seen his glory. And when you see his glory, you see it in surrender, and, and surrender brings about a joyful service. That's where you can find joy in serving the mission of God. That's the whole point of this series. That's where you find joy. Paul would eventually return to Jerusalem, and, he would, and, God, and when, he was, when he was there, um, he was only there for just a short amount of time, and, and God would come to him and say, hey, make haste. In other words, like, get up and get stepping, man. Get moving and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony of me here. And Paul would spend a few verses, 19 and 20, trying to convince God that he should stay. Trying to convince God, God, you're wrong about this. How many of us are there, right? How many of us are, have tried to convince God that he was, he was off on this one? God, no, 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 I'm, I need to stay right here. This is where I need to be right now. I don't know if you've ever tried arguing with God, but you will lose every time, just like Paul did. You will lose every single time. He might let you go for a season, but you will lose the argument every single time. And he said to me, just like, here's, here's where he kind of rejects uh, Paul's offer to stay. And he says, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And it doesn't seem like joyful service, right? It doesn't seem like Paul is surrendering, and now he's just joyful to serve the Lord. He's like, no, 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 God, I'm going to stay here. And God's like, no, 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 you got to go. you got to get out of here. And he's like, no, 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 but it, it's a good idea for me to stay here. i got a plan. i got a strategy. I read these church planning books, and I know how to grow the church here, and, 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 and I'm going to change some of these statistics, and i got a good plan. And so God's like, no, you got, you got to go out. you got to get out of here. And finally, he's just like, hey, go. Get out. So to me, like as, when I say that it, it surrender brings about joyful service to the Lord, it, you read this text and you're like, ah, I don't know if Paul is you know, in his surrender being joyful about what's happening at this point. It seems like he's kind of being told what to do, and he's going to have to leave out of obligation. But what's going on below the surface is an invitation for Paul. He's being invited into something so much bigger than his silly idea. So much bigger than, than what he has going on. He is being invited into the work that Jesus has already been doing. He's being invited into work that's already been going on. The mission of God to the Gentiles began generations before Paul had even been born. And God had a plan to, to reach the Gentiles. And when Jesus would show up on the scene, Luke would describe him in, in, in chapter 2, verse 32 of the Gospel of Luke. He is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's how he would be described. See, God's plan was always to go and reach the Gentiles. And he said, no, no, Paul, come on, man. We got a plan. I've been working on some things over here. I just want you to be a part of this. I'm going to do the work. I just need you to go. I need you to go and I need you to be my mouthpiece. And I'm going to change the hearts. And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry, that he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. You see him healing Gentile people. You see him sitting at the table and, and having meals and sharing fellowship with them. He is there for revelation to them that he is the Savior. He was already on this mission to seek and to save the Gentiles. And he recruits on many occasions using that same word. Go. Right? That's what he tells Paul in this moment. I'm recruiting you. Go. 
You 11 jokers, it's time for you to go. Get off this mountain and go. Go to the Gentiles. Go to the world. Go to the nations and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I promise you I'm going to be with you every step of the way. I've already gone before you. I'm already there. I've already been working long before you ever showed up on the scene. So I don't want you to be mistaken that Jesus was, was trying to revive a struggling team here, right? Like, he was, like Paul was the number one draft pick, and he said, I've got to get you. You've got to turn this thing around, man. These guys, they're not, things aren't moving like I want them to, and so, Paul, we need you on a team. In fact, just a few chapters before, Paul would say in, in chapter 17, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he didn't need Paul, and he didn't need the disciples, and he didn't need any of us in this room. So here's the question. If God doesn't need us, if he doesn't need us, why does he use us? Why are we being challenged every single week under this story through the book of Acts, this history of the church? Why are we being challenged every week with the question, are you ready to surrender your life for the gospel of the grace of God? Are you ready to surrender everything for that? Everything that you do in your life is a means to try to find joy. Everything that you do, every day that you get up, every step that you take, every effort that you make is a means for you to try to find some kind of satisfaction and some kind of joy in your life. And God is saying, it's with me. It's with me. You come serve with me in this mission. And, and there is where you're going to find joy. You come and participate in the Father's work, and that's where joy is found. Many of you have grown up uh, with a dad who let you do dumb things with him just for the sake of you being with him, right? That, that you guys are going to work on a lawnmower engine together, and, and you contribute nothing to that task. But he lets you kind of work alongside of him because he wants you to enjoy his work with him. He wants you to enjoy being with him as he works. And it's the same way with God, and this is the only reason we get an invitation to participate in this mission of God. It's the only reason we get to participate. God is commanding us to go, and by that command, he's saying, be full of joy. The thing that you're looking for is found here. So God is commanding our enjoyment when he says, go. Go to the nations. Go to the Gentiles. Carry this good news. Give your life away for it. Because that's where joy is found. So, have you laid your yes down to this Father's work? I, it goes without saying, but sometimes needs to be repeated, that every single one of us who call on the name of Jesus for salvation, is that we are also called unto mission with him. Every single one of us are called to make disciples. Every single one of us come under the opportunity and the privilege and the responsibility of the Great Commission. All of us. So have you laid your yes down to the Father's work or have you just been inviting Him to join in your work? Have you been saying, come along with me, God. No, I'm going to stay right here in Jerusalem. I'm going to stay right here. I got a plan, God. If you just join me in this, we, we, we got something we can do here. 
And some of you, some of you, you're in the room today because somebody said yes to God. Somebody said, yes, I will, I will love that person. I will invite that person to come be a part of what's going on at Soulful Community Church. So some of you in this room can, can attest to that, that, that you took a step of obedience Jeff, you were scared to death today, taking a step of obedience. He's going to experience joy in the Father like he hasn't before. And, and that's where it's found. And so some of you are here today because of that. That's where complete joy is found. God's going to move in your obedience. He's going to move in you taking those steps. You might think that your joy is found in advancing your career. You might think that joy is found in raising good, successful children or getting accepted into the right school or getting accepted into the right social circle. You might feel like that's where joy is found. And, and I don't want to take away from the fact that joy, some joy is found in that, right? Like, that's okay like for us to kind of want that because that is some, some kind of happiness for us. But it's ridiculous for us to compare to the joy and the glory of joining Jesus in his mission. It's not even a comparison. It's, it's, it's so much better to be with Jesus. And in Paul, he would experience this, and this is what would give him the courage to stand up in front of a crowd and address people who want him dead. Every single person in the crowd wants him dead, and he explains that God called him to go to the Gentiles. And so up to this point, they were tuned in. They were listening to what he said. This guy, hold on, he's one of us. He can speak our language. A lot of us in here know him. But then he gets to this point in verse 22, up to this word, when he said that God sent him to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. That's no surprise to Paul because that's what Jesus promised. Jesus promised this kind of stuff. They're going to beat you. They're going to torture you for my name's sake. It's going to happen. And so this doesn't surprise Paul that he's in this predicament, that he's going through this. And at this point, the tribune would learn that Paul is a Roman citizen. He'd say, are you, are you seriously fixing to put your hands on a Roman citizen like this? And they learn, oh no, we're fixing to make a, a grave mistake because flogging him right now would be illegal for us to do. And as a matter of fact, if they find out that we did this to a Roman citizen, we would be flogged. Like they got the same kind of punishment. And so the interrogation would come to a halt in verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused, because obviously these are trumped up charges, uh, by, accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So we get to chapter 23. The first nine verses of chapter 23 is basically a Jerry Springer episode where they're sitting down, they're starting to have this conversation, and then hands start flying and people start punching. And, and before you know it, Paul, he kind of, he he's contextualizing still. And so they, he said, hold on, there's Pharisees and there's Sadducees in the room. And there's some things here that these guys don't agree on. I'm going to play on that for a minute. So he starts talking about the resurrection of Jesus, right? And the Sadducees, they're like, they don't believe in the resurrection whatsoever. And so they're like, hold up. And then that starts a conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so Paul just kind of kicks back. And then they start kind of brawling and fighting one another. Again, it's Jerry Springer episode. And so he sits back. And, and then in verse 10, when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So let's stop here for a minute. Let's consider the context. Consider where we are in the story. Paul is taken into custody. 
on some bogus charges. They can't find anything wrong. Well, you're going to learn as we move, continue moving through the text through the rest of the book of Acts that he goes before governors and all kinds of important people. And they're like, man, we can't send this guy to Rome with n- nothing, no charges. Like, we can't find anything wrong with this guy. So he's taken into custody for no good reason. And I'm sure that Paul loves these people. Otherwise, he wouldn't be trying to convince them of anything. But he's desperate to convince them. He wants to address them. He wants to share the good news of the gospel with them. And all they want to do is attack him. They want him dead. This is hometown for Paul. These are his people, man. This is where he was raised. He knows these people. They know him. Do you think you would be discouraged or overwhelmed at this point if you were Paul? Like, this this is the place where I felt like Things would be the easiest, right? Among my own people. They understand me. They know me. They know how I was raised. They they can see the radical transformation in my life. And the other question I have is if you would have known this, would you have said yes to Jesus? If you would have known that this would have happened to you for saying yes to Jesus, would would you still say yes to Jesus? It's no accident that every time we submerge someone in the water that we ask them, are you willing to follow Jesus no matter what it costs? It's no accident that we ask that question. Because there could come a day and a time where it could cost you everything. Are you still willing to follow him? Are you still willing to say yes? Surrender is where we are able to courageously keep saying yes. It's in this place of complete surrender where we can keep saying yes to Jesus. Verse 11 of chapter 23, the following night the Lord stood by him. I love that we have that. That in this darkest moment, in this most discouraging time in his life, it says the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Jesus is encouraging Paul, and he's encouraging us to confidently trust in him, to confidently lay our yes down, even if that means we have to do it again today. Even if it means we did it yesterday, and we didn't really mean it, but we've got to do it again today. If it means that we have to do it again today, he's saying, surrender is the place where you're going to find courage to trust me in that and say yes again today. Take heart, Paul. We're not finished yet. This is not where it's going to end for you, Paul. We're not finished. I know this this time is tough, but it's not where it's going to end. We have more work to do. You might have wanted things a different way, Paul. You might have wanted them to turn out a different way, but but I have have a plan, man, and we're going to accomplish this thing. I'm going to use you to do this, and it's going to be so great. And Paul would need this kind of encouragement. He would need this kind of word from the Lord who was standing by him because what comes next, that evening, Paul, he gets a Hallmark card from Jesus, right, saying, be of good courage, be of good spirit. I'm with you. I'm going with you. I'm walking with you. And, and then the next morning, he wakes up, and he gets word that an assassination plot has been formed against him. Wait. Wait, Jesus, what happened last night? What, what, what happened last night? You said... Be encouraged. We're, we're doing this. And then I wake up this morning just to learn that, that 
There's people lying in wait to, to take me out right now, want to kill me, want to assassinate me. Over 40 people involved in this conspiracy that would go all the way to the very top of the Jerusalem government. And this would all get disrupted in verse 23. Then the tribune called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as spearmen were like snipers, but they didn't have guns back then, so that's the same thing. Um, to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, 9 p.m. And if that's not enough, verse 24, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to the Felix the governor. Now, even though God isn't specifically mentioned in those verses, you can't miss his divine intervention in this moment. How encouraged would you be that you get, you get this kind of security detail, this kind of, of treatment that only really went to royalty. No one else ever would get this kind of treatment. You just imagine like when the President of the United States leaves the White House, kind of the security detail that goes along with him, he's put in a limousine and he's caged in and, and, and military and secret service and all kinds of things are put in place to move him from one point to another. This is what's happening with Paul in this moment. This is what's going on with him. And Jesus, just to put a little cherry on top of all of it, just to say, I told you so, he, he, the passage would end with, with Paul arriving at, at Caesarea, and he's going to be put in protective custody inside the palace of Herod. Nobody's getting to him there. No one's going to reach him there. God is clearly at work, but remember what his work is about. He is clearly working in every one of these details, but don't forget, don't miss it, you must testify this gospel also in Rome. So Paul, Blake, anyone in the room, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about making this gospel known to those people. And yes, your life is going to be taken from you. But not yet. That's what he's making it about. It's so much bigger than just you and me individually. We get, we, get involved, we get to be invited and involved and participate in this grand plan that God has, has been working since the foundation of the world. He's inviting us into this. Paul can't possibly figure out every detail of what God's doing in this moment up to this point. What is he doing? He can only trust him for the next step. That's all he can trust him for. I have no idea what awaits me there except the thing that you promised, hardship. Trouble, trials, imprisonment, abandonment. That's what I know. Everything that has happened so far can't possibly be chalked up to coincidence. Think about what's, what's just transpired over these last couple of chapters. Plot after plot has served as this escalator of sorts to bring Paul to the very top of society. To put him... In Caesar's house, everything, all of these plots. In Jerusalem, the Roman commander would intervene and pull, pull Paul out when he's being attacked. So it would start there. And because of the plot to murder him while he was in custody, the Roman commander moves him out of Jerusalem, sends him to Caesarea. There he stands before the governors. The remainder of this book, the remainder of Acts, Paul's going to appeal to Caesar himself. He... He's going to be moved to Rome where he's able to freely preach the gospel. On his way there, he's, he's talking to the governor Felix. He's talking to King Agrippa. He's talking to some of the most powerful people in the world at this time. Because of the trials and the plots that he's been having to go through, 
They have been serving as a means to carry the gospel to the very tip top of the world. And all he can say is, I know that this is my next step. God, I'm trusting you for this next step. I don't know the end game. But I trust you for this one. I trust that you're going you're gonna to do what you promise you're going to do because even in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of trial and trouble and opposition, God is sovereign and the gospel advances. It continues to move. You see it right here. No, 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 Paul, I'm not finished with you yet. I know this is hard. I know this season of life that you're in is not what you prefer. But we still have some gospel work to do. You've got to go to Rome now. Through Paul's suffering. Think about this. Through, through the suffering of Paul, God smuggles the gospel into the house of Caesar. That's big. That's big for us to know. Don't give up on the ministry that God has given to you. Don't walk away from the yes that you've laid down. Lay it down again today. Yes, Lord, I'm trusting you for today. Here it is again. Here's my surrender again today, Father. Let me join in your work. I know that's where joy is found. Don't doubt God in the tough seasons of your ministry and the tough seasons of your life. Don't doubt him. If you can trust God to save your soul for eternity, if you can trust him for that, you can trust him for this season in your life and your ministry. You can trust him for the small stuff. Our willingness to follow Jesus no matter the cost is God's strategy to spread the gospel. That's his strategy. His strategy to move the gospel forward, to advance it, is found in our surrender and our saying, yes, amen. I'm in. No matter what, I'm in. So when did we start believing in the lie that slick marketing was God's strategy for the spread of the gospel? When did we start believing the lie that cooler music was God's strategy to spread the gospel to the nations? I'm looking at God's strategy to spread the gospel. I'm listening to God's strategy to spread the gospel. Jesus doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But he wants us. He, he wants us to participate in this. He wants to use you and me to do the miraculous. He wants to use you and me to do the impossible. And it won't be easy. easy. You look at Paul's life. You look at where he's at. It's not going to be easy. But it's worth everything. It's worth it. If it costs me everything, it's worth it. So will you surrender your life for the gospel? That question has just continued to fly in our faces. And what I hope is that we don't leave here and say, well, that was a really inspiring message. I hope we don't leave here and say, hmm, that gave me some things to think about. But I hope we would leave here and just utter surrender because the question for the last 39 weeks now has been, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to surrender your life? Because that's all that God asked for. That's it. So let's trust him and let's go. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you are 
so extremely good to us when we do not deserve it. God, thank you for reminding me, reminding us in this text that, God, you are worth our comfort. Father, you are worth all of our other trinkets and idols that we spend so much time working toward and so much time giving ourselves over to. And so, Father, we lay them all down at your feet, and we surrender everything, and we surrender our yes to you. All our chips are on the table. Father, I trust you. Help me on the days that I don't trust you. I believe in you. Help me on the days that I don't believe in you. I want to follow you, Father, and help me on the days that I just don't feel like following you. I pray that your word would accomplish everything that you want to accomplish, everything that you desire to accomplish. Father, forgive me whenever my personal opinion gets in the way of that. Father, align my heart with yours, the desire to see that this gospel go and bring life to people who are so far from you right now. God, even in this neighborhood, even those who are close to us, even the people who live on our streets need their hearts illuminated by the light of the glory of the gospel. And so, Father, you have invited us to participate. You've invited us to be a part of this plan that you've been working from day one. So, Father, for, this, for those of us in this room who... We find ourselves at a, at a place of a crossroads of sorts where to go one way is to keep doing the same thing and to go another way means that there's repentance involved. And I pray, Father, that you would be kind to us who need to repent. Care for us through our repentance. Forgive us, Father, for not taking that question seriously. It's the question that you've asked every single person who's placed their faith in you. Will you surrender? Will I surrender? Father, you are free to do whatever you want to do here with this church, with me, with these people. Father, give us the courage and the grace say yes to whatever you would call us to do right now. Let us take serious the accounts that we've read in this book and the challenge that's been put in front of every single one of us. Let us take serious this gospel. Knowing that there are thousands and thousands of nations in the world, Father, who have never heard the name of Jesus. And much of it has to do with our comfort. Much of it has to do with our own agenda. And so, Father, would you break our hearts right now? Would you help us to see just how desperate this world is to meet you, to know you, to follow you, to have the, your grace in their life? And would you compel us with the gospel, Father, to go, to follow you no matter the cost, 
May we be found on that last day obedient. May we be found right in the middle of your good grace and your good will. We ask these things in your name. Amen.